All right, welcome. My guest today is the leader. What's your official title over there, man? Uh, director. The director. That's a good one. It's the director of Contend, his prayer ministry out of Colorado Springs. And um, he's a good, close personal friend of mine. We were at Berkeley together, although he's a bit younger. I was I was an old man by the time he was a student. But um, we both we both did prayer stuff at Berkeley. And um, I don't know about you, David. I just feel like um, the prayer stuff at Berkeley in that season really shaped who I am. I'm basically doing the same stuff that I did then. <laughs> me too. Me too. Right. Yeah. Nothing's and, changed. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, we just saw Ty Lam, who um, is the the leader at Luke 18 Project at IHOP, and he's doing the same thing. And then obviously Joe Kim, who's a close personal friend of ours, who leads NAOS House of Prayer in Berkeley, he's doing the same thing. It just seems like all of us who really gave ourselves to seeing revival, you know, as college students on our campuses, a lot of us are still doing largely the same thing. We feel like God is still telling us to keep doing it. Do you ever uh, do you ever regret getting into this in the first place? No, I don't. And I mean, I love that you bring that up. I think there's a difference between people who gave themselves to the Lord. And I'm not saying you had to have been part of the prayer movement specifically, but the people who set their course and set their faith, it creates a trajectory. Whereas, you know, for those who don't, you, you end up wandering, you know, uh, uh, through life. And I'm not saying that in a critical way or just overgeneralizing, but I think it's true. Uh, what we've seen, especially just with our spiritual family from Berkeley over the years, uh, uh, that trajectory really matters, you know? And so I'm encouraged that, gosh, it's probably been about 10 years since we first met. Yeah. Uh, we're still tracking. Um, you guys may not know this, but Dennis and I, we try to start a business together. Um, didn't get off the ground, but we're still in the business of prayer. Um, and so, yeah, we're, you know, I really want to encourage, you know, particularly the young people who may be listening in on this conversation. Uh, those years, they matter. They're so formative. You know, they, as long as you keep your heart tender and you don't get jaded or disillusioned or bitter or offended, um, God sets you up. And, and there's a lot of our friends who are in the marketplace with the same vision and values. You know, they're just in a different setting, uh, even if they're not in ministry. Um, so, it is it is fun to just think back on those days and how they shaped, you know, where we are now. Yeah, I'm super thankful for it, man. I I tell you know, I was a pastor for college students for a long time. I always tell college students like this is the season where you're really like an adult, right? You're making your decisions, you're really setting the trajectory of your life in this season. And I feel like it's pretty true for us. We did it, we gave our all for the kingdom, you know, and here we are ten, in my case, twenty years later after college. And, um, you know, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that um, I, I did that. And a huge part, at least for me, was um, was Lou Engel, right? I went to a call event in Washington, D.C. This was right after high school in 2000. And, um, you know, I was not used to all, like, that was the first time I'd fasted all day long like that and prayed for 12 hours or something. Like, I was, to be honest, kind of miserable, <laughs> Like, you know, like high school. And I remember in that event, um, I'm like, you know, it's like, I don't remember exactly the time, 3 p.m., 4 p.m. or something like that. I've been praying all day long, fasting, and I'm just feeling so miserable. And then it starts to rain. And and all the charismatic people start going buck wild at that point. Like, they're so happy. It's like the, you know, the outpouring from heaven. And I was just thinking, in my mind, I'm like, I hate these people, right? Like, 
<laughs> but I say that in you know in jest. But to be honest, that event um, really marked my life. It filled me with such a, a longing and a vision for revival and lose DNA. You know, I. I have too much of Lou's DNA. I don't know him on a personal level, really. I've, you know, I've talked with him a couple times, but he's been so influential um, in my life, and I know he's been really influential in your life, obviously. So talk a little bit about that. Tell me about your relationship with Lou. Like, how 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 do you feel like he's impacted your life? Yeah, um, I'll start with this. I think the biggest tragedy that I see today is college campus. You go there and you raise, you say, hey. Whoever's heard of Lou Engle, raise your hand. Nobody's heard of Lou Engle. <laughs> and, and, or nobody's even heard of the call or been to a call, much less. And I think for, for even for us, uh, uh, particularly for you, uh, but even for me, we can look at a, so many people who are marked by the call. And I think what the call was, was it was like permission to be radical, right? And I think... Okay. That's who Lou represents to so many of us who's been impacted by him. You look at that courage, the boldness, but also the humility and the tenderness. And there's something inside of you that's like, whatever this man is saying, I want to, I want to be that, you know, I want to carry that kind of fire and passion. Um, and so for, even for me personally, um, I, I worked with Lou, uh, for the better part of the last decade, twenties, um, and, uh, you know, you're, you're in the big gatherings where really, I, I really don't know if there's anything like it today, you know, on that scale where people would come together and fast and pray. And you're not just talking about a one-day thing. Most of these gatherings, even the more recent ones, people, not just the staff, but people would come having prepared themselves for 21 days or 40 days of fasting and prayer there was a sense in which every single gathering, we believed that that this prayer meeting is going to shift the heart of God and, and move heaven, uh, and we, we would see the impact uh, in our generation. Um, and, and that's that's like it's such a profound thing to have been there, uh, uh, you know, as an attendee, as part of the staff, or, or whatever. Uh, but just even being with Lou up close, you know, it's rare to be with a a father. Uh, I think, you know, no leader is perfect, and, and Lou uh, uh, would be the first to say that, you know, and talk about his struggles and weaknesses, but to actually be with a leader of that, you know, that scale and see the humility, you know, that marked my heart as a young person. You know, I'm, one of my favorite memories, I always tell this to people, is watching Lou weep, and he said, God, all I want in my life is a small company of people that we can change the course of history because we're consecrated and we're all in. And that's a man who's been in front of hundreds of thousands of people. But I think that core longing of his heart to be in a small room with 10 burning young people and him feeling fulfilled in that moment. Lou was never a man, as long as I've known him, who's itched to just have big gatherings for the sake of big gatherings. It, it was just the little prayer meetings and then when god gathered people they came you know and so i think particularly for our generation we're we have this tendency to think my meeting is small so it's insignificant but if everyone's all in and we're all on the same page that meeting it, it changes history you know and then you know one day god may turn it into a one million person gathering uh and and it, you know that's what we see 
on social media. That's what we talk about for the next 10 years. But if we're thinking about what's led to that moment, it wasn't just great organization. There was there was a company of people who were hidden and were praying and fasting. And I think there's so much to be learned from that, especially in this generation that lives their whole life, you know, in front of the media and social media and stuff. And so I know he's marked your life. He's marked my life. And my hope is that his DNA will continue to mark people for generations. That's what contend, you know, we're all about. Um, and, and many other ministries is let's take that DNA and let's, let's give it away. Um, and so, yeah. you know, we're, you know, I'm, Again, I, I think the greatest tragedy would be if it died with those of us who knew knew him. You know, I yeah. think it has to go further. Yeah, talk about that a little bit, because I know that, you know, the call is done now. Um, Lou has his own Luangle Ministries, and it seems like a lot of his spiritual children kind of have their own ministries, and he's trying to support them. And, of course, Contend is one of those. Um, talk about that a little bit. What is Contend? What? How is it? How is it different from the call? Is it the call rebranded? Or is it different? And, you know, talk, talk about a little bit that that dynamic. You know, there's there's so many people who are impacted by Lou. You know, I'll just say that first and foremost. You know, banning uh, Jesus culture. Bethany and Daryl, they're at J-Hop Boston. Brian Kim, who founded the Act School, um, Pioneering Mission. Uh, I mean, I could just go on and on. Benji Nolo, Exodus Cry. Uh, and, and I think part of that is, that kind of fruit, uh, JT. I mean, I I could just talk and on and on about the Matt Lockett, J Hop TC. I think part of that fruit is evidence that Lou's been a person who's always wanted the best for the next generation. You know, I remember, man, I was starting when I was you know twenty one, twenty two when I was traveling with Lou. It'd be a big conference, and Lou would say, "I want you to share your story for five ten minutes." You know, who does that? You know. Uh, 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 who tells their travel assistant, go and preach, go lead this prayer meeting, you know, in front of 5,000 people. Uh, and I think that's always been Lou's heart is, you know, he's always wanted the next generation to succeed. Um, and, and so, you know, there's so many offshoots from Lou's life for contend. You know, we, we were birthed out of, out of the call. The call had a big transition and we we're birthed out of the call. And in a lot of ways, we, we feel a sense of responsibility um, to take what the call had, very specifically, you know, uh, uh, in fasting and prayer, uh, consecration, Nazarite lifestyle, prayer meetings, solemn assemblies for the next generation. And so right now, that's, that's our aim and focus right now. It's, it's what the call was. You know, can we represent it to the next generation uh, of young people? You know, and it's, different, it's a different ballgame now, right? There's a conference every, you know, other week. You know, there's so many major gatherings. But what we're what we're hoping for and believing for is going to be uh, uh, is is where these young people are at if, if they're living on social media or whatever we we got to go to them we got to go to Gen Z and give them these DNA values so that's really what we're, we're content hard is at now that's our primary focus uh, think of it as the call for young people yeah yeah I hear you I feel like. You know, one of the things the call and Lou really did for me is it gave me a paradigm for national revival and giving myself to a cause that was bigger than my local and personal thing. Like, I remember I went to the call, and um, after that, I was like, I was burning for revival in my city on my campus, you know, and it was, it was outside of me. And even now, so much of my heart is like, I want to see revival in America. That is such a, a deep part of my DNA, and I find that that is actually not that common. 
like most Christians, most churches, their vision seems to be a lot um, more localized, right? You know, maybe their church or their ministry or even their or their personal life. I just feel like that's one thing that really characterizes, you know, the call and Lou and also your ministry at Contend. So when I was leading these college students, you know, I would be trying to give them a vision for, you know, revival and, you know, for for mission because it it is what totally changed my life. My life was totally transformed when I gave it over something bigger than myself, right? It was a vision big enough to which I could give my life over to it, and that actually brought me a lot of life. And so I tried to do that for my college students, and I'm really thankful for you, David, because um, you know what I what I did was I would bring a team out to Colorado for the Contend America event a one week. I would tell them it's not going to be easy because you know most kids they're not used to fasting for a week, right? <laughs> like that's like what you know. I tell it's not going to be easy, but what you're going to do is you're going to be baptized into this vision for national revival and hear the dreams and hear the stories. And those dreams are so powerful because they give you a sense that this is actually something that God cares about this stuff. He cares about what happens to the nation. And even as we're in this whole thing, we're going to talk about all the election stuff. I just got to say, it just seems like so many Christians and, and Christian leaders don't have a vision for nations and that to me seems like such, uh, like it's holding the body back so much. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, why do they not have a vision for nations? And how is it that Contend and the Call really capture this vision so well and impart it so well? Yeah, um, no, that, that's a really good point, you know, in terms of biblical worldview. I, I, I've heard it said by a leader, um, and I'm hearing the second hand, so I don't have the, the sources for it. They said in the last 200, 250 years, the longer Protestantism is in a nation, the less influence it has. And I think that's, um, you know, Dutch uh, Sheets had this quote, which, which marked me profoundly. He said, salvation is individual, but revival is always corporate, right? So salvation is individual and revival is corporate. And I think, you know, so much of Protestantism or even American Christianity the expression of it has always been about the individual, right? I mean, even basic, you know, phrases that we hear, Jesus Christ is, is not a religion, he's a relationship. I think that's valuable. Uh, 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 and, and so much of our discipleship has been about the individual, you know, and then even in more mature churches, you'll hear talks about m- maturity, not just salvation, but m- Christian maturity. But it does stay, tend to stay at the individual level. You know, a lot of our understanding, even in America, is, is super individualistic as a culture. Um, uh, but that's not, you know, if you look at classical Protestantism, or Reformation, or, you know, apostolic Christianity, first century, or even the biblical worldview, everything revolved around the corporate, right? You see, in, 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 the, in all the prophets, they, they hone in on Israel. They hone in on the individual within Israel, and then there's what they call the global address. That's what most theologians call it. And all of the prophets have this moment where they turn to all the nations of the earth, and they address them one by one and give them you know, the, the judgment and the decree of the Lord. And we've lost an element of that kind of understanding uh, in our culture in terms of our biblical worldview. Uh, we don't have this understanding of God's sovereignty over nations. We don't have this 
understanding of his dominion over the whole earth and how he works, you know. And, and I think we're starting to recover a, a, a little bit of that, but, but there is resistance, you know, and I think part of it is demonic. There is a, there is a resistance to understanding how God has set different institutions, including governments, uh, 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 different flows of culture in place. These are actually principles that God set in place since the foundation of the earth, uh, uh, and we don't understand how it all works together. And so, uh, you know, in one sense, it's almost like going to war with one grenade, you know, um, and it, it, it's, it's a real tragedy. But part of what I love about Lou and the call is, is, is there is this thing of it's so much bigger than yourself. Arthur Wallace put it this way. He said, if you are to make the most of your life, find out what God is doing in your generation and throw yourself wholly into it. You know, and I think part of that salvation experience is that individual redemption and freedom and deliverance that we, we experience. But until we find ourselves in a larger tapestry, we're not going to be fulfilled. You know, yeah. that's why I think so many Christians, it's so easy for Christians today to fall under an unbiblical worldview or a totally deceptive narrative. And it's not their fault. I think, I think it's because we haven't created a robust worldview on how faith and culture and all these things, you know, move together. And, and with the call there, there is an element of, 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 of understanding that kind of worldview as a corporate people, how we stand before the Lord as a nation and as a church. Um, and that was really, you know, uh, instilled mm -hmm. inside of me as, as being part of a, a part of the call. And, and, you know, it, it is, it is, you know, concerning that, that we that this generation large largely in part they don't have that worldview so the worldview that they're fed is what they'll see on social media or media or or whatever someone tells them you know and, and so yeah. it, i think it is really important um uh, that we do get this you know understanding of, of of how these things move together um i'll just share one more story um i remember lou was <laughs> he was at a he was at he was in manchester england uh and i heard the story secondhand from lou's assistant who was his travel assistant at the time and he was preaching at a Jesus culture pastor's meeting. And as he's walking in, one of the key leaders in the body of Christ in England is walking in with him. And the key leader is speaking with his friend. He doesn't know that my friend is, is Lou's assistant. And he goes, oh, that Lou Engle guy is here. He's that charismatic guy from America, that divisive guy, blah, blah, blah. Lou shares for 20 minutes on the history of revival in England and how England's destiny has always been to be a land of revival and ascending nation. 20 minutes, that's all he spoke for. His assistant ha happens to walk out with that same senior leader as they're walking out. And the senior leader is completely blown away. And he says to his friend, that guy is an Old Testament prophet. You know, and I think there's something to be said about the We've lost that element of the prophetic ministry. We've lost that element of where the prophets would take their stand, not just before individuals, but before nations. And they would decree the word of the Lord. And, and, and we've lost that place in one sense. But I, I, my prayer is that we'll come to that understanding. You mentioned the election, yeah. you know, all this kind of stuff. We, we really need to recover this uh, as the body of Christ. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... I'll tell a story similar to that. I was, you know, I, I can't remember if I was a student or if I was already pastor, but there was an event, and no, I was a pastor, 
because this was when Lou came to Berkeley. Um, he well, he came a couple times. He spoke on abortion one time, and I remember when he spoke on abortion, I went home so convicted. And the issue it wasn't that I was convinced he was right and abortion was wrong. I I was convicted though that I needed to know, you know, like before that it was like okay, abortion, I don't care about that. That's political, like whatever. And so I probably would have been like that English pastor, you know, where I'm like, oh, dude, this Lou, he's so controversial. To some degree. I already had a history with Lou, so I already really appreciated him. But I, you know, when he, you know, it, it's like when these speakers, they want to talk about political things. For me at that time, I'm like, I don't want to be political. You know, I just, I'm all about the kingdom, you know. And, but he talked about abortion so forcefully. I'd never heard it spoken of that forcefully before. And I went home and I went before the Lord and I said, God, have I been silent on the most important issue of my day? And I, I sought the Lord, and I felt like the Lord said, it said, yes, you have. And I felt like rebuked from the Lord. And that's when I repented, and I decided that I'm going to start speaking out on abortion and start to concern myself. And I was repenting of even just that wanting to be non-political, you know, which I think is all over the place in the body of Christ. I mean, that's the label that, you know, comes against you. Now that comes against me, comes against Lou, right? We're so political and divisive. So many, you know, Christians don't have this paradigm. I wanted to ask you, you know, John Piper just wrote this article about why he could not vote for Trump, you know, and it seemed like a lot of it had to do with Trump's character, from Piper's perspective, Trump's character disqualified him from the presidency, and his character was having a terrible, like, uh, correct me, but it was something like, Trump's character is just as damaging to the nation as abortion is, or something along those lines, right? I mean, what do you think about that, man? You know, I I respect John Piper. You know, not not everyone does. I I love John Piper. I actually own every single book that he's written. Uh, I read about half of them. <laughs> uh, you know, deeply. I read about half of them with notes, and then the other stuff I've referenced. Um, you know, I think he was. You know, obviously he was dead wrong on this, and, and this is why I think there are a lot of Christian leaders uh, who didn't vote for either candidate. Now, there's a there's a slew of them that voted for Biden. And to me, um, I just don't know how you can stand before God. <laughs> I'm just I'm, I'm just if I'm if I'm honest, with what that platform stood for, uh, I just do not know how you can stand before the Lord um, with with a clean conscience, you know, uh, in his holiness. Um, but there were a number of Christian leaders who who, you know, refrain from voting. Um, and I and I do extend a, a level of respect for them, but I think John Piper, he his article and the main issue I had with it was if he had left it at Trump's character, particularly pointed out arrogance. If it's arrogance, his arrogance disqualifies him or disqualifies John Piper for voting for, for him. If he had left it at that, I think that's one thing. What John Piper did was he elevated that sin of arrogance, an individual sin of arrogance, to the national iniquity of abortion and to me that you know there are a number of responses from wayne grudem uh abby johnson wrote a great one uh uh, uh al moeller al moeller his you know i'm paraphrasing his line said uh you can't tell me that uh, uh, uh there's a contradiction essentially between a calm-mannered mild-mannered man who stands for 
the killing of millions of innocent babies and another man who raves like Genghis Khan, but is fighting to save those lives, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and to me, Piper equating those things was a, was, it gave permission for a massive deception to fall upon the body of Christ that delegitimized the fight against abortion and, yeah. and, and, the, and, and delegitimized the idea that someone could vote for Trump because of his platform uh, for life, you know, which is where most evangelicals, their reasoning for voting for Donald Trump was because of his stance on the issue of abortion. And it was a, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was terrible reasoning. You know, it was, it was flawed logic, but the damage that yeah. it did on the conscience of, of so many young people and so many young voters, uh, I almost, and, and Piper has been so vocal uh, on the issue of life, but this one thing, it, it, it could have, I'm not saying it, it had, I'm not speaking absolutes, only God knows, but it could have undone the effect of everything that he's fought for. Because the, the, the reality is, is right now today, we are this close to the ending of Roe v. Wade, and it, it is in many ways dependent on this election. And, and so, uh, you know, I don't know what to, to say to that, you know, that yeah, we can come to the end of the fight and then just say, come to the end of the fight and say, I'm pulling out of the fight. And I don't think that this fight is uh, legitimate or godly or whatever. And then take in him being the leader that he is, one of the most influential voices in evangelicalism. It, I think it, it was a massive massive disservice to the body of Christ and to the cause of life. I mean, it felt like a betrayal. It felt like a betrayal. Yeah. Like, we're here <laughs> fighting for this stuff, and now John Piper is coming with the knife behind us. <laughs> you know, like... I, 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 sent, I sent my friend a video clip of when Robert the Bruce betrays <laughs> <laughs> William Wallace, and William Wallace yanks the helmet off of Robert the Bruce, and yeah. he's just so shocked that he just lays in the grass you know, the wind yeah. knocked out of them. I mean, you know me. I'm not even like a huge John Piper fan, but I ha I respect, you know, he just seems like somebody who's solid enough that you wouldn't expect him to stumble like this. It just seems, bro, it seems like um, all these reform guys are stumbling heavy right now, man. Well, Al, Al Moeller, Wayne Gruda, man, they, they kept the faith. <laughs> I mean, Moeller, Moeller has been actually really amazing. Like I've been really impressed. Um, I've been impressed with him, um, and he's not somebody that I've really paid attention to before. Go ahead, sorry. And, and part of Moeller that I think is, is so impressive, the reason of that is he has an expansive biblical worldview, very robust, very strong. He understands the role of nation states. You know, he's a huge fan of Churchill, which I also am. Al Moeller is, you know, I don't want to go on and on about him, but he, you know, he truly is one of my heroes. But he, I think that's the difference. It really comes down to worldview, right? You know, and, and I understand the argument of, of Christian witness, um, but, but that alone, it, it, Christian witness is not an isolated thing. It's not isolated from culture. It's not isolated from government. It's not isolated from the flow of, of, of national histories. Uh, in fact, it's very tied to it. And those who don't have a strong grasp on history, they don't have a strong grasp on the role of government, and the interplay, uh, uh, I understand why they wouldn't see that. But again, I, I, I point to the failure of so much of, of discipleship, so much of, of the focus on the church in terms of teaching 
that, you know, you can't really blame a 21 year old who barely knows anything and the world offers them this incredibly robust worldview, uh, yeah. largely Marxist. Um, and for them to finally find a narrative that they're a part of, you know, uh, uh, what we should have been offering is, uh, is a very robust biblical narrative, redemptive narrative that, you know, they can feel like they're part of that story. Because in this age, that age group, you know, that are being largely swayed, that 19 to 25 year old age group, everyone's trying to find their place in the world. And the, the secular ideology has offered a place for Christians. And, and, and the church hasn't, hasn't, hasn't painted a, a, a robust picture. I mean, and the church has the best storyline. You know, so it is, it is frustrating, you know, uh, on, on, on our end as, as leaders who may see the fuller picture, um, you know. Uh, but, you know, it just shows how much work we have left to do. I mean, I, that's interesting. So, you know, you're talking about this biblical worldview. Give me like one or two things. What does the world? What is the world? And especially, you know, me and you agree this is like a, a cultural Marxist or a neo-Marxist worldview or paradigm that's really being foisted in mass upon this generation. What is so appealing about this worldview that the church is not doing a good job giving? I think it's the you know, if I put it simply, without getting you know, too technical. It's a cosmological salvation. Uh, what I mean by that is a big picture salvation. I think everyone is asking the question, how is the world going to be redeemed? Right? Or in other words, utopia. Uh, uh, or, yeah. you know, it, it's all, you know, and Christians have a very, you know, we, we're supposed to have a robust eschatology and understanding of where we're headed. Uh, but we haven't communicated that. So we've stayed at the individual salvation level, and we've said, hey, your main job in life is to accept Jesus and stay saved long enough to get to heaven. And while you're yeah. on your way to heaven and escape the world, bring as many people along with you. Yeah. What the Marxist worldview is also offering, it really is a, a, a theology of salvation. Now, it paints everything in a different way, right? It, it, it's It's this, it's salvation from the oppressors. Um, and so what salvation looks like is for the oppressed to overthrow the oppressors. And somehow that's going to create this magical utopia, which has never happened in human history. It's, I mean, you and I know it's led to the largest amount of human suffering in the history of mankind has come out of this ideology. Uh, uh, but it's offering them a compelling vision of what salvation can look like. Yeah. If all we do is overthrow, you know, uh, 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 the oppressor, that mankind will enter into utopia. Uh, but that's not the case. Um, but and, and what the biblical worldview that, that we should have painted uh, uh, was, was a similar vision of, of salvation, uh, 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 understanding that God is establishing his kingdom, not just in heaven, but on the earth, that he's going to sum up all things in the heavens and the earth into himself, uh, the, the, you know, the way the old saints used to call it, occupied until he comes. And it was to take as much ground as we can until God comes and does the big thing, you know, and we've lost that apostolic ambition, so to speak, you know, even the Reformation, they had this understanding that Christians were to infiltrate every level of culture and government and education to prepare the world for the return of the Lord. The forerunner ministry, you know, we talk about this in the prayer movement, the forerunner ministry, it's not just about staying saved and staying in a prayer room until he comes back, that real forerunner ministry biblically understood was to, was to, you know, I, I get accused of being a dominionist sometimes, but was essentially to have cultural terraforming of the whole planet. 
that when the Lord returns, he is returning on straight and level ground. You know, and that was, you know, the forerunners were literally supposed to straighten every path and level them so that the king's chariot would go, would never have to turn left or right and would never go up and down or never bounce. And they would just go in a straight line. And we've lost that vision. You know, we've lost cultural transformation. Um, uh, uh, we've we've kind of given ourselves to an escapist theology. It really came into the church around the time of Vietnam. You know, cultural crisis in the 60s and 70s produced this theology. The world's getting so much worse, especially after World War II. Uh, we, we're all just going to get raptured. And the church left all the spheres, you know, uh, in that time, except for, you know, a small group which became a large group called the moral majority. You know, we can, I won't go too much into that, but cultural transformation and personal faith have been at odds with our understanding. And now Marxism comes in and says, here's how you can transform culture. And it hijacks this whole millennial zeal to see justice in the earth. It, but it's a justice untethered to truth and untethered to righteousness. Um, but it has stolen the millennial uh, impetus you know, to see that kind of justice on the earth, when in reality, there is a, a, a godly path to this, you know, in the nation, you know, reformation is, is the word we use for it. And so that might have been a little too long. Um, oh, it's good. Yeah, it's good. I, I think, you know, it really is, you know, um, I mean, I have hope. <laughs> I have hope for, for our generation, but that it, 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 it has swept the church in a, in a, in a large, large way. For sure. I mean, I've got this quote by Lecrae. He says this, What if Christians who want to reduce the number of abortions supported funding health care for women, dealt with the systemic racism that creates poverty for women of color, and addressed the income gap between white people and people of color? Unquote. So basically what he's saying is all of you, you know, Christians, uh, conservative Republican Christians, you know, um, we've been you've had way too much influence. We need to start rethinking this and doing it in a more kind of woke manner, right? There, there's clearly this movement in evangelicalism to go woke, right? And I think it is touching on some of the stuff that you talk about. There's a very practical vision of how to accomplish um, utopia, something like that, right? Or the kingdom of God on the earth or however you want to put it. And it's compelling, especially to young believers. I feel like right now, Lecrae's statement is something like, I, I see that type of thing all over my social media pages, right? And it just seems to me like evangelicalism is splitting right now. When I look at the reform movement, it seems like the reform movement is splitting along these lines. I feel like there's a split coming in evangelicalism. I don't know. What do you think, man? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously deeply concerned. Um, I think the heart of Lecrae's statement is being echoed by a lot of younger leaders. Um, uh, I read a post by, um, man, I forget his name, Jason Upton. And he said, I'm longing for the day when dem 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 the, the Democratic Party will value life in the womb and the Republican Party will value the life of uh, minorities and people of color and, and, and the poor. Right. Uh, and I think that's um, that false dichotomy is one of the greatest media manipulations yeah. in, in our modern history. Uh, 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 and most Christians take that as true. 
Now, the church has a lot of work to do. Uh, I'm not, and the church has, you know, the church has not been perfect, right? A lot of the leaders of the moral majority, you know, had integrity issues, you know, um, and and I think, you know, there's something to be said about that. I think, you know, the church has to have grace, but at the same time, it, you know, uh, uh, people's lives affect, you know, if, if you're a leader, affect, you know, other lives. But to, to say that, you know, it's just patently untrue. And and for those, you know, who may not know, I mean, one thing I see often is the abortion rate has decreased more under Democratic presidents than under Republican presidents. Number one, that's false. Under the presidency of Jimmy Carter, uh, abortion rates increased 32% uh, and decreased during the days of Reagan, Reagan and, and George H.W. Bush. Another thing that they don't factor in is starting the 80s is when the when when strong christian leaders begin to advocate not at the federal level but at the state level for abortion restrictions mm. and that's you know the amount of christian leaders and, and conservative efforts to decrease abortions at the state level especially during democratic presidencies because they knew that they couldn't if a democrat's president and putting in liberal justices and has control of the house and senate there's nothing virtually that you can do at that level at the state level was en masse campaign. And so the Democratic Party can't take credit for that. Now that I know that's a statistic that's been spewed out by a lot of people who, you know, are trying to take that position of Democrat, Republican, you know, I'm neither. And uh, it, it's just untrue. Uh, 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 and, 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 the fa- and, the, and the idea that, that conservatives or Christians have not been, Christians and conservatives have been leading in all of those humanitarian efforts. You know, I, I posted, you know, a while back, but I, I think it's, there's 30% more Christian interest in adoption. Uh, 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 I think it's a similar percentage for the people who do adopt are, are, are people of faith. Uh, uh, the amount of giving from Christians or to faith organizations far surpasses any other organization. Uh, and if you have someone to blame, blame the local church that you're at. You know, you, it is it is so deceptive to put a blanket statement on the whole body of Christ. Even the largest megachurches, you look at Gateway Church in Texas, giving away massive amounts of finances. Our, one of the churches in our city, New Life Church in Colorado Springs, gives away so much money that anytime the mayor needs anything for a city humanitarian project, the first person he calls is Pastor Brady Boyd and says, can you guys fund this? And it's funded almost instantaneously. They have mm-hmm. housing for, 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 for single mothers. I mean, the church is, is leading this charge in so many ways, but the, this misinformation now pitted against, well, now the let's do government funded things, which, you know, ends up, I won't comment on it, but but that's you know it, it, that's just just the deception here, right? I mean, how do we have how do we have people like Lecrae and Jason Upton? The, you know, these are people with influence. They're believers. They're 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 strong believers by every measure. How how can they be ignorant of all this stuff? How can they not know about all the humanitarian work that Christians are doing? How are they buying into this? I don't know the individual reasons, you know, for Lecrae or Jason Upton, um, but I do think that the the left, um, and when I say the left, I, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It just is the left, you know, political left, 
um, and, and disillusioned Christians have taken such a powerful position that it's just convincing in this media age. And um, I think there's a multiple factors here. You know, I think there's spiritual factors, um, but just even factors in the natural that have produced uh, 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 this level of, of misinformation. And, and I, I, I don't fully know what, these, what those factors might be for each of these individuals, you know, for some, and I'm not talking about Lecrae or Jason Upton, it may be hurt from the church, personal experiences with spiritual abusive spiritual leaders, uh, or, you know, whatever the case. Um, I think it's irresponsible. You know, I'll put it this way. I, I don't know the, the causes or the motives of why these leaders are saying certain things, but I, I do think it's irresponsible to say those kinds of things when the evidence is to the contrary. I, I think it, here, here's where I have an issue is that it is far more popular today to cater to uh, public opinion than to defend the church. And I don't think that defending the church means you're a hypocrite. I think it's part of what you do as as a as a how, how does how does John the Baptist say as a friend of the bridegroom? Sure. I think I think a, a true friend of the bridegroom will defend the bride and the bride's honor, For sure. because they know that the bride and only the bride will be presented to Jesus Christ. Yeah. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. This is a profound statement. The poor you will always have with you. But what she has done is to prepare me for my burial. And what the social justice movement has done, in effect, is to say Christian extravagance is of less priority than the ministry to the poor, or Jesus would flip it and say, your, your extravagance to me is of the highest priority and then remember the poor, you know? And, and so I, I, you know, it's, there's so much I can talk into that, but I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Well, that's good, man. I, I do, before I, I get you out of here, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I want to hear, cause I know that you are somebody, you're a very futuristic thinker and we're right now in the middle of potentially a huge election, you know, conflagration. This whole thing could blow up, man. That's how it feels. And I want to get your sense. What do you think? Are we going to have, is Biden going to be president? What do you see moving forward from this point? Yeah. I mean, on one hand, I, I feel like we're, we're just in one of those moments where it, it's hard to say what will actually happen. Prophetically and as an intercessor, um, I am praying and believing that through a miraculous turn of events, President Trump will be declared an inaugurated president by January 20th, 2021. Um, I know that's a crazy statement. And I think part of, and this is, this is, and I'm getting flack for saying this, but right now, everyone coming out in vocal support of Biden and Harris is part of saturating this generation with the idea that Biden and Harris won this election legitimately and anything that happens to the contrary is going to be, you know, uh, a threat to democracy. Right. Um, 
which is actually the opposite, right? right. Uh, the, the greatest threat to democracy is mob rule, right? It's, it's the, the rule, the chaos of, of, of the mob. That's the greatest threat to democracy. That's what our founders understood. Um, and so, you know, that's what's happening right now. Um, I, I do believe that, that President Trump is supposed to be the next president of the United States. I believe that through prayer, and I believe that because, you know, believe the prophets and you shall succeed. That's, that's what the Bible says. I believe the prophets have prophesied correctly. In fact, I know Chris Vallotton just released, and this might be dated by the time this gets aired, but Chris Vallotton released an apology. I appreciate his posture, um, but I just talked with uh, another prophetic leader this morning, and I won't say who, but essentially uh, they were talking about um, in the book of Numbers, there's 12 tribes that are sent into Israel, and two of them come back with a true report, and 10 of them come back with a false report. And because of the, 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 the vocalness of the 10, the true report is ignored, and the people wander for 40 years. But they still have the true report, and I believe that the prophets actually do have the true report. I believe it's, it's our job to pray and fast. That's me coming from a spiritual sense. Um, uh, but what has been done irreparably in our nation is that the foundations of democracy have been eroded uh, and they have been eroded from the left. I do fear the radical right. I think everyone should be afraid of what the extreme right can look like. Um, and we have not seen yet in America in our present day activism from the radical right. Um, and I think if that ever surfaces, Christians should oppose it. But the great threat to democracy today is the radical left. Everything that's happening right now, I was talking with a friend who cannot be named uh, from the Department of Defense, and they said this. They said the tactics that the media and the government, entertainment, and education are all doing right now in terms of disinforming the public is the same exact tactics that they would use to destabilize foreign regimes. That is happening on our own soil. Yeah. Now, I don't say that as a cuckoo conspiracy theorist. I'm simply saying if anyone were to study history and study the consequences of major ideas that have played out at national and global levels, this is not a strange and foreign concept. This is pretty straightforward the way it's playing out. And so those are my concerns at a spiritual and practical level. Um, I think a Biden presidency would, and I, I don't say this in hyperbole, I wouldn't have said this about Barack Obama. I wouldn't have said this about the Clinton administration in the 90s or any other uh, uh, Democratic administration. But because of the platform, uh, because of the, uh, uh, the Congress men and women, because of who is our vice president, Kamala Harris, the most progressive, uh, she was the most progressive senator in the U.S. Senate. Um, because of these things and, and, and President Biden, you know, having a reputation for being, uh, in, in kinder words, flexible, you know, in his values uh, and his stances, policies, um, uh, I believe that a, a Biden-Harris presidency will be the beginning of what we know as the Republic of the United States of America. And I, I say that without hyperbole. Uh, I, I say that with a clear view of history and a clear view of how scripture uh, interprets that history. Um, and so 
it, I think every American should be concerned. Um, I, I I don't disagree at all. I I, I think, uh, you know, it seems to me the prophets have built up some credibility with me. All right, going into 2016, I remember um, when Trump first launched his candidacy, I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And the scary thing was that um, he was dominant, right? He almost swept the primaries, you know. Um, and I remember just being worried, like, oh, shoot, is Trump going to get the Republican nomination? Can we stop him? And then um, and then it looked like, oh, he's for sure going to get it. And I was like, okay, all right, so I'm going to vote for Trump. And then that, you know, tape came out with him talking about grab her by, you know, her private parts. And I... I, I remember I talked to you and I was like, bro, can we vote for this guy? Like, just like I just in confusion and like, oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? And um I I have to imagine so many pastors were feeling that. And um I looked to some of the the prophetic voices that I trusted, and several of them were like, This is the guy, <laughs> right? He's anointed by the Lord. I saw um what's his face's um Kim Clements, you know, prophecy about the trumpet, you know, and, and Rick Joyner, um, was like pretty confident, like this is it. And I remember like, I have an incredible respect for Rick Joyner in particular, but some of these leaders that I heard, I was like, all right, I'm going to trust them because I don't know what to feel about this guy. And here I am, I'm four years later, not only did many of those prophetic voices call it that he was going to win. And it looked like an impossibility for him to even win that election. Um, not only they call it, but he has been everything that I could have hoped in a Republican president, and um, so the prophetic community has really, that, I remember the day before the election, I said, um, okay, we need accountability in the prophetic movement, if, because they're saying he's going to win, many of these prophetic voices I trust, and all the polls had him as like a landslide loss, right, it was like New York Times had Hillary Clinton at a 98% chance of winning or something ridiculous like that, right, and they called it, he nailed it, all those predictions have come true. It built up a lot of credibility. Honestly, prior to this, I did not give prophetic voices a lot of credibility when it came to presidential elections. I just heard so many, in, you know, go off, you know, in different ways. But it really built up a lot of credibility. And since then, I feel like many prophetic voices, Jeremiah Johnson stands out to me. A number of these voices have really nailed it. I, I was saying, like, Matt Lockett, his words on the Supreme Court, you know, um, justices, a lot of lose um, dreams and words that he shared have come true. So there's just so much credibility. So I actually feel pretty confident that it's going to go because a lot of them, you know, predicted that it was going to be, um, you know, uh, disputed this election, um, but that he was going to come through in the end through the Supreme Court. So I'm actually pretty hopeful that Trump is going to pull this one through. If he doesn't, that's fine, right? We're going to fight. I'm going to fight no matter what, right? Um, but I'm pretty hopeful. But I think, yeah, I think there's a good chance that we are headed, if not in the near future, in the um, semi-near future, I think we're headed for um, a major conflict and major, you know, a civil war. I think that's very likely at this point, you know, just seeing, because no, nothing is healing the nation, okay? All these people that are saying, you know, oh, Biden, now the nation can get healed. I'm sorry, you're in delusion from my perspective. Okay, you're in delusion if you think Biden is going to heal the nation. It's not going to heal the nation. Things are going to get worse under a Biden-Harris presidency. They're already talking about making lists of Trump supporters, right, blacklists, 
it, the, the far left is being empowered through a Biden presidency. And that worldview only brings increased conflict and war. And so I don't see this getting better anytime soon. It looks like to me it's going to get worse and worse and worse. The The good thing from my perspective is I think that tends to be how the kingdom works. It's the good and the bad together, right? The bad and the good come usually in some type of package together. So I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not filled with despair. I'm really hopeful, even though I think hardships, hard times are coming. In fact, the burden that I feel on my heart is to try and prepare the body to, to, to face hard times. Like we need to go deeper, David. Like one of the things I'm so appreciative of you for is that you are helping to lead a movement to bring depth to the body. Like fasting, So few believers I know fast that aren't connected with the call or with you guys. You know, like, where's the fasting in the body of Christ? Like, we don't, like, we've lost so much of the difficult disciplines that bring depth. And you need that. We're going to need that depth when things get really hard. I've been trying to warn believers like, we've never had it so good. If people say 2020 is the worst year that they can remember, I'm like, 2020 from a historical perspective, is a freaking wonderful year, all right? Like, it is amazing right now how blessed we are compared to some of the utter atrocities and horrors that we've had not even that far back in history. And so that's my take. I think we're headed for, you know, hard times, but I am hopeful that if Trump pulls this out and he gets reelected, my hope is that we can have a major pushback. And maybe we can end our discussion on this what can we do if Trump is elected? How do we fix this thing, brother? Like, how do we push the body of Christ into a place where we can start to really fight and contend for the nation in a serious way? Yeah. By the way, um, just one point. Um, I, you said what I had forgotten, and you said the thing you brought up about the Biden-Harris presidency is not going to heal America. And that is one of the greatest delusions, like you said, that this young generation has come under that I'm seeing posted everywhere. Now that Biden is elected, we can finally heal as a nation. You have 69, 68 million people who are convinced that their votes were stolen. Um, this is not going to go away. And if Trump gets elected, then it's just flip-flopping. It's, it's going to be that. Um, and we are more divided than ever as a nation. You know, um, And part of that is, is due to the last... 15, 20 years at a government level, the last 40, 50 years at an educational level um, to indoctrinate the next generation in cultural Marxism. I don't just throw around that word and, and people take it way too flippantly when it's mentioned. The crux of Marxism is literally to divide the people Absolutely. into two classes and and, and identity politics and so many other things flow from that, you know, and it co-ops a lot of biblical language. Like the Bible does talk about the poor. The Bible does talk about the oppressed. The Bible does talk about, you know, the foreigner, you know. Um, but uh, uh, in, in, these, in these contexts, you know, the, the narrative is completely different and these, and these terms have been co-opted. But back to your question, you know, what do we do if, if Trump is elected? I think that's a really good question. I, I think, you know, first I want to say if Biden is elected, um, I, I got to be honest, uh, and I'm going back to what I said earlier. I, I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but I do believe that it will be the beginning of the end of the republic. And here's the thing. If the United States was some random country in some part of the world, 
its collapse would have very little effect on the rest of the world. You know, nations fall and rise every day. This this is a you know this is not a you know this is a global phenomena. But what we have to pay attention to in history is when superpowers rise and fall. That affects not just that nation, but the globe for decades, sometimes even centuries. When the Roman Empire collapsed and the barbarians invaded Rome, the, the world went into a 1,000-year period that now we now call the Dark Ages, where we couldn't even figure out how to get running water. We couldn't build buildings that were more than three stories high for a thousand years, you know, yeah, and people think, crazy. you know, and, and the entire Mediterranean region descended into a bloodbath of chaos, you know, for a thousand years, you know, and people think, you know, oh, you know, who cares if America rises and falls? God is still on the throne. It's absolutely true. You just don't want to be living in those times. <laughs> you, know? you can say that all you want, but you're, you know, that these, there's there's many geopolitical theorists and one book i just read was called on war and they said there's something called good wars and they said all of human history is bloody but the least bloody times is when there is a morally good nation relative that can have a monopoly on violence on a whole region and so what that means is that there isn't you know tribal feuds there isn't you know interstate internation conflicts its dominance over the nation creates a blanket of peace where humanity is prospered. That's the time we're living in right now. You know, I think we're at the end of the Pax Americana. I think it could be extended. But we're living in the most prosperous time, not just in our nation's history, not just in Western civilization, but in the history of mankind. Yeah. In fact, it, it, it's so good that, our, that people have no concept of how it could get worse. And so I think this is part of the, the flaw is the understanding, you know, a progressive mindset sees world history as linear. And so things get better and better and better and better. So when you look back at your ancestors, you say, oh, they were racist, misogynistic, homophobic people. We're going to do better. You know, and then you just keep on improving and improving and improving. That is not how history flows. History is cyclical. That's the Hebraic understanding is that history goes through cycles, right? As nations rise and fall, as superpowers come and go, the world enters into a high point of civilization and then it crashes and we go into dark ages, barbarism, all that kind of stuff. And then it just keeps it. There's it's cyclical, right? That's the Hebraic understanding of civilization. Uh, uh, and that's, that is, you know, why, you know, for you and I, you know, that is our, that's the conservative understanding more or less is that mankind in general can, is capable of doing some pretty evil things and we can restrain that with good government, right? And so America is not a potent nation or not, not just even a nation in Europe or a France or a Germany that has an incredible rich history and now is a non-player on the field. No, America is the superpower. If America were to collapse, it will mean, it will mean global conflict. Uh, it will mean uh, all these Asian Americans, you know, some of whom may be listening to this podcast, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, those nations are in some serious trouble, you know, as China is on the rise, you know, uh, the Middle East is going to descend to chaos. You know, Israel will not last long if it's, if it's surrounded by enemies on every side. I mean, I, I don't think people know what they're asking for. I think, so that's the Biden presidency. That's the bleakness, you know, and, and again, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, it's, Bleak, bro. but I, you know, there is a, 
a naive understanding of how the world works, you know. But going back to the Trump, what, what, what should the church do? Um, the church has to do what Trump cannot do, which is actually heal the nation. Um, I believe that Donald Trump gives the political governmental framework for revival and reformation to happen. Uh, uh, I do not believe it happens in, it could happen under other administrations. Uh, history has shown that, that the church has thrived and exploded in times where religious freedoms uh, 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 has, has occurred. And I'm not just talking about Christian nations uh, like the UK at its height or, or America. Um, even during the, the Mongolian you know, empire, it had no special treatment of Christians, but there was religious freedoms that allowed Christians to travel all throughout the Mongolian empire. Right. And, and we saw missions movement during that time. I think if, if, if President Trump is, is elected president, now the church has to do what only the church can do, which is the heart work of the people, the, the, the saving of souls and, and the reformation of souls and the discipleship uh, in terms uh, of understanding. Now, I, I may eat my words here, um, but I, uh, I've said to friends, I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain that we are going to redirect all of our energy to the Gen Z. Um, the millennials have, have, have come, and out of the millennials, God has raised up some incredible leaders. But Gen Z, I believe, you know, there's great opportunity there uh, to disciple them in the right type of biblical worldview. I think biblical worldview is the number one thing that we need today. Our school, uh, we have a school called uh, SAFA in Colorado Springs, um, our school, the first three weeks is all biblical worldview because I, we come to this understanding is no young person has been taught this. They've only been educated how the world works through, you know, their public education and then their colleges that are largely progressive and liberal. Um, and so biblical worldview instruction, I think, is going to be critical. Uh, I think mass discipleship is going to be critical. I think the church has to not be intimidated and cower to the political left, which is what has been happening today. And that's why you do see so many Chris, uh, Christian leaders uh, 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 who are capitulating, you know, because of the amount of intimidation uh, uh, that it simply should have stand against this Marxist worldview that you don't care about the poor, you're a racist, you're a homophobe. I mean, just today, uh, or just the other day, I got called a race traitor. And it was, it was, I'd never been called that before, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> Call me a straight up race trader, and I had, I had not even said anything on the issue of race, or or it was simply the position that I took on abortion, you know, um, and I was called a, a race trader. Uh, I think that language, you know, it's not going to go away. I don't okay. think the divide is is just going to magically disappear. I think it's going to intensify, but it's going to take bold Christian leaders who are speaking truth. The encouraging thing that I have realized is that when because this generation is so jaded especially the Gen Z, so jaded by the amount of disinformation uh, 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 on both sides. I'm not just talking about conservatives. I'm talking about liberals. They're so jaded on the level of, uh, of misinformation and the level of media manipulation, you know, the amount of advertisements that are flashing before their eyes every single day. They are looking for truth. You know, so I, I do think there's this incredible opportunity and a credible hunger for young people to flock to truth. To, and, and we know truth as that which has been laid down eternally by God in his word, right? Uh, 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 and, and so I think there's an incredible opportunity there. I think the church has to pray like never before. The church has to be the church. 
the church, you know, and, and it will not be that if it continues to capitulate and cower and agree with the accusations. You know, that we're, all we're going to be left with is morbid introspection. This is where so much of the church is at. This is morbid introspection. That's like, oh, man, the church has sucked at all these X, Y, and Z areas. And the only thing that they have left to do then is to issue public apology after public apology and not do the work. We got to do the stuff. Um, and I have confidence, you know, that, that we can do that. I, I, I am believing for revival, not pouring of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so, you know, I know that was a little long. Um, good. And, and I'm, I'm continuously warning on, on, the, on the dangers of what I see in the Biden-Harris administration. But in particular to... You know, if Trump wins, you know, the last thing we want to do is take our, our, our pedal off the gas. I'm not, and, and none of us conservatives, by the way, are married to Donald Trump or the Republican Party. I, I just see it as the clearest avenue to which there will be religious freedom for the church to act. And uh, um, we, we, we need to do that. We have to do the thing that people think that the government can do or, you know, some other thing, you know, do ex machina, this, you know, this thing is going to come and save America. It's not going to happen. You know, we, we have to act. Yeah. Well, that's good, man. Thanks so much. Um, I, I have one, one last question before I let you go. Give me a couple leaders, two, three, could be more if you think of more, that you feel like if, you know, people need to start paying attention to some of these leaders. Like, who are the leaders that we see arising in the body of Christ that you'd recommend to anybody listening to this podcast? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I'm very partial to Al Mohler. Al Mohler has a podcast called The Briefing, um, which if you've ever watched it, you know, The Briefing, a daily analysis of, 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 of world news from a Christian worldview, right? Uh, I, I love that podcast, 25, 26 minutes. Uh, um, I listen to it, you know, when I drive every morning. Um, love Al Mohler. Um, I've Fred Markert. Uh, may not be as well known, but Fred Markert is a brilliant, brilliant teacher in the body of Christ. Probably has the most revelation for not only what is happening at this at this hour at, uh, in every sphere of society, but what needs to happen. So Fred Markert is is not just a visionary; he's an implementer. And right now, he's working on something called the Great Awakening Project that I'm, I'm, I'm Audrey, my wife Audrey and I are a part of. And part of the Great Awakening Project. And now Fred Marker helped mobilize AD 2000. Uh, and so he is not uh, a, an amateur at this. Um, but the Great Awakening Project, I think the website and everything is going to launch pretty soon. Uh, but that's an incredible uh, a way, you know, at even an implementation level. How do we save America from every level? And there are strategies right now being written out for government, education, entertainment. We were in a room uh, last year, and there were execs from Hollywood there who are covertly Christian, and they're all strategizing on how to, you know, tip, what's the tipping point for our culture, right? Because there has to be that tipping point for our culture where enough revelations released, enough exposure is happening for people to shift their minds. Um, prayer, you know, we're involved in the prayer track. Fred Markert's incredible leader, uh, Lou Engel. Now, obviously, I'm very, very, very partial to Lou. Uh, mm. Love Lou. I, as long as I have known him, he's been a man who's, with great tenderness of heart and sensitivity, has not compromised his message, you know. And, you know, when I think of, of Elijah standing on Carmel 
and no other prophets of Yahweh have joined him. Um, and he's surrounded by the prophets of Baal. I think of Lou Engle, you know. Uh, Lou has said things that have, you know, been some of the craziest things, you know. Um, but he's, he's a prophet. Um, those three those three leaders come to mind. I, I know they all skew older, but I, I do think part of this time is for the younger generation to follow the leadership of the older generation. I think that has to be bridged. And that's why even for the millennials, and I speak to the millennials now, part of the issue with the millennials is all millennials want to lead, but they're not willing to follow. And that's why I actually think that Gen Z will have a higher success is because there is something innately within Gen Z. I won't go into the whole generational cycles and differences here that is willing to follow that kind of leadership. Um, and so I think, you know, I'm looking at fathers, you know, who have clarity and have conviction and have character. Um, you know, uh, as far as more skewing younger, I've loved what Jeremiah Johnson is saying these days. Uh, uh, I love what you're doing, uh, uh, Dennis, uh, with the Righteous Remnant, um, all the posts that you're making. Um, you know, we mentioned our mutual friend, Joe. Um, trying to think, you know, just Voices of Truth. Ty Lam with Luke 18 Project. He's done an incredible job just leading in that way. Matt Lockett is, is a frequent source. When anything happens <laughs> at a government Supreme Court level, we are all texting Matt Lockett, you know, because uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, he's so close to the action and he stayed engaged. You know, I'm, I'm looking for leadership for people who are not jumping on the current bandwagon, but have stayed in the trenches for 15 plus years and have real revelation and real spiritual authority because that's what's lacking today. But that is what's going to win at the end of the day. It doesn't matter how much grip the media might have on a generation if it's superficial, you know, spiritual authority trumps all of that. The moment fire falls from heaven, the people say with one voice, Yahweh is God on Mount Carmel. I'm, we're waiting for that moment, but it takes an Elijah to do that, you know. Um, and so I think, and the biggest thing is, I, I think people really need to, you know, read the Bible, um, read good Christian uh, leaders and understand uh, the flow of nations. I think that's a, that's a big, you know, Anyone who's successful, businessmen, um, entertainment, all these leaders are intimately acquainted with the flow of nations, you know, uh, and how that all works together. Uh, uh, and I think that's huge to success. And so all the people I've mentioned have, have, have fairly good grasp on that, on that stuff. And then some of the old guys, I love Churchill's insight, you know, I know this was your last question and maybe you expected right. something shorter, but no, no, it's great. I, I've, I've, I've loved these leaders. I find myself going back to a lot of the old dead guys and how did they live in similar times of, you know, of critical history, Abraham Lincoln, you know, I, I, I'm George Washington, you know, I'm, I'm going through these biographies because they made choices that impacted the world, you know, and impacted the flow of history. What if there was no Abraham Lincoln? Would we be here today? What if there was no George Washington? You know, would, America would not be a superpower today. What if there was no Ronald Reagan, right, to, to, to defeat communism? We'd still be in Cold War, right? And you think of the implications of, of these kind of people, and I think our generation really needs, young people really need to understand the gravity of those kind of moments and not live in so superficial social media 140 character revelations we we need to put ourselves in the seat of deep 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 weighty decision making consequential kind of thinking um which we lack right now 
you know, and it's, it's showing itself uh, in spades, you know, right now with, you know, the reaction to Biden and quite frankly, maybe even the reaction to Trump, you know, it, that's not going to solve anything. It's just going to give us the governmental permission to do what we need to do. For sure. Well, thanks, man. I really appreciate you coming on and being able to chat with you. You're somebody that um, I highly respect, and you're one of the guys that I always recommend people listen to and a voice. Um, and you know, you had such a great influence on so many of the students that uh, you know I was pastoring. So thank you so much for your partnership and ministry, brother. Um, if anybody wants to, um, you know, get involved with SAFA or anything, how can they? How can they do that? Yeah, so SAFA is our three-month training school. You can go to contend.global slash school uh, for more information. Um, contend uh, America is our annual summer gathering. This next summer, it's going to be June 16th through the 19th, uh, Wednesday through Saturday. Actually, this summer, it's invitation only. Um, so you have, you know, you can request an invitation. Uh, we may send you an invitation, or you may have a friend of a friend reach out to you. The reason we're doing that is we're limiting it to three to 400 people. It may not even be that big, um, but we're, we're bringing in senior leaders from all across the body of Christ. And I, what I'm telling them is tell us what you say in backroom meetings, not what you say at big conferences. Like give us the stuff that you're scared to talk about in public, you know, because we need leaders who are going to speak very frankly to us. And then we need young leaders who are going to do something with it. I really believe that's going to be the only way we're going to shift the nation is if there's people who are going to take real revelation and apply it in real time. And so this summer, June 16th through 19th is going to be our contend gathering. Um, probably most of you guys who are following and tracking with Dennis have been to contend America before. Um, and so I want to, I want to see you guys again. Um, and then we're also doing a summer training called Nazarite intensive that's capped at about 50 student leaders who are part of college, who are part of college ministry. Uh, and it's it's training there. And so we're doing a lot of focus on training now, um, whether it's three months or four days, um, and then a lot of prayer. Um, this is a spiritual battle for our nation. Uh, I'll end this piece uh, with, with this Dutch sheets. I'll never forget that said, if we knew, if we could see in the spirit and see the battle in the spirit raging over America right now, we would never live the same again. And I think that's a reality that now we're seeing in the natural, um, but hopefully it's waking up Christians all across the nation, all around the world. Come on. It's awesome, bro. Love you, man. We, we you appreciate too. you, bro. Yeah, thanks, dude. Yes. All right, we'll do so this again. We'll you. do part two one day. All right, let's do it.